Good morning. Please join me in reading 1 Peter 3, 13 to 22. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited for the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, church. Hey, we just wanted to say thank you to, uh, to all of you who have been praying for our family in this process of welcoming our, our new daughter into this world. Um, Mandy's doing well. Uh, the baby's doing well. Stella and Cam, you're doing well. And thanks for asking. I'm doing well, too. Um, I have a little picture I want to show you really quickly if it shows up. I know. That's, that's not my doing, that's God. And uh, we're just rejoicing for that. Uh, thank you once again for all the, all the prayer and uh, the meals. The only thing that I have not enjoyed about this process at all, and I need to confess this to you right now, is that I stepped on a scale the other day after you guys been uh, bringing food to our home. And I'm, um, anyways, I had to pray and confess that to the Lord. Um, but no, in all, in all seriousness, thank you so much. Uh, we were in the hospital. We realized once again that life is just such a beautiful gift from the Lord. Not just because she's our daughter, but because just life is a gift from God. And um, just very thankful for that. So I uh, just want to say once again, on behalf of my family, just thank you. And um, would you join me in prayer as we ask God to bless our time together here this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you. Uh, for this day, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we have, uh, in one way, the freedom to be able to study together and to be able to meditate upon what you have to say to us. I pray, Father, that the Holy Spirit would give us direction and guidance 
I pray that we would not take your, your word for granted, that we would not take this book as just an, another book that communicates some sort of wisdom, but that we would understand that this is divine revelation. And so, Father, I pray for this church. I pray that CBF would be a church uh, that's a church of the book, that we, we, we would do ministry related to what you desire for this church to be accomplished because we are a church that focuses on your word. So, Father, would you give us direction this morning as we study this passage together? In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. One of the hard, harshest realities, realities of life when we, you think about life in general is the reality of suffering. Especially when it comes to finding someone or see, watching someone to struggle in life because they're doing good. Unfortunately, when we think about that idea and that concept, we, we realize really quickly that that is where the church falls under. We, we have been called as believers to, to do good. And believers now have suffered more often and been persecuted more often than any other generation ever in human history. Now, if you look at 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 20, Peter has says these words, and he says this, for what credit is it if you sin and are mistreated and endure it? But if you do good and suffer and so endure, this finds favor with God. Now, I'm not sure about you, but if I had a list of 10 things that I would ask God to do in my life, suffering would not be there. You would not find number three on Michael's list, suffering. And then in parentheses, a lot. You wouldn't see that. You wouldn't see the word suffer or any other word that makes me have to depend on God and struggle from a human perspective. But it is really interesting when we look at 1 Peter, and we've, we've watched this so far, that God has given us, through Peter, through his word, the ultimate example that we must follow. And we know that that example is the one who went to the cross and died for our sins, and now he serves us not only as our Savior, but also as the one we follow. Not only the one that's good for salvation, but also the one that works in us for sanctification. And so, I, I want to I challenge you this morning here from 1 Peter chapter 3 to understand that we need to be willing to suffer for what is good. So now let's, let's dive into this text here in 1 Peter chapter 3, and, and let's, let's see what Peter has to say to us. Here's what he says in verse 13. He says this, For who is going to harm you if you're devoted to do what is good? Now, the first point in your outline is that the believer's resolution to do good, right? Because he says this, not only who is going to harm you to do good, if you are devoted to what is right. In verse 13 here, Peter, Peter starts off this section actually with, this, with the, this incredible question. And the question is directly connected to the verses that we studied last week when Pastor David expounded on the idea that Psalm 34 was being mentioned here. Now look, at, look with me again in verse 10. 
For the one who wants to love life and see good, now look at the words that he's using, to see good, good days, must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from uttering deceit. And he must turn away from evil and do good. And he must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are upon the righteous and, the ear, and his ears are upon uh, their prayers, op open to their prayers. But the Lord's face is against those who do evil. So there's two things here. There's two qualifiers in this passage. Number one, here's, here, here's what he says. He says, when it comes to doing good, 1 Peter 3.12 is going give, to give us two things. And number one, first the eyes of the Lord, look, at it, look with me again, the eyes of the Lord are upon the righteous. The righteous in the sense that this person has already trusted, entrusted their lives to, to the Lord Jesus Christ. And now they are righteous before God because of the relationship through salvation. So the, the eyes of the Lord are upon the righteous, which means the Lord sees everyone. Now the second thing is his ears are open to their prayers, which now God is saying through Peter that he not only sees everyone, but he also hears everything. For Peter, to do good is actually a byproduct of what God has done in their lives and to their fully commitment to God. Now, doing good, according to Scripture here, is the action of doing what God requires, not what Michael requires. Because if we were to evaluate the standard of goodness amongst all of us, our standard would not be a flat pattern which means that you would have different standards than I do, but we don't do good because of my standards or because of yours. We do good because of God's standards. The suffering that Peter is talking here, and that's the point, I think, Peter's point here, is the suffering that people are receiving, the believers are receiving, should not change the direction, listen to this, the direction of their commitment towards God's standards. Which means that if I get up tomorrow morning with a headache, that doesn't change my commitment to the Lord. Now, if I go a step further, according to Peter, if I'm being persecuted, if I'm struggling in my face, if there's people mocking and ridiculing me, and I get up tomorrow morning feeling like, man, I don't want to be a believer anymore, the problems of this world should not change my relationship with the Heavenly Father. So, number one... You must have, you must be resoluted in your mind. There's a resolution that needs to take place. And number two, there's a divine reward here. And once again, this is just God's goodness to us. Look with me in verse 14. It says this, verse 14, but in fact, if you happen to su suffer, which what he's saying is, it might happen, and it just so happened that they were going through suffering. So if it might happen for you to suffer for doing what is right, you are blessed now, church, does it feel good? Does it, does it feel good when somebody mocks your faith? When you're a teenager and you go to public high school, does it feel good to be under that suffering? Does it feel good when you share with your neighbors the good news of the gospel just for them to close the doors and never open that again for you? Or when a family relationship happens? And there's a believer and an unbeliever and all of a sudden the gospel is being presented and that relationship seems to get even worse. What Peter does here is he offers an encouragement through the affirmation of God's promises. 
He says, you, you are blessed if you happen to suffer for doing what, what is right or, it would, or in other words, to doing what is God's standard. This is God's spiritual affirmation to his children in the midst of intense suffering. And that's why when Peter quotes here, listen to this, when he quotes Isaiah chapter 8, when he says this, but do not be terrified in verse 14 of them or be shaking. He's quoting Isaiah chapter 8, which God is speaking to Isaiah and God is telling Isaiah, listen, they will mock you, but you need to live your life in a different pattern because of my standard is set for you. And so Peter goes all the way back to the Old Testament, and he says, Isaiah went through a similar situation. Now I want you to be encouraged. And that's what he does. So if the believer is supposed to actually be willing to suffer for what is good, then he or she must set Christ apart in their own hearts. And this is what he does in verse 15 to 17. Look with me again what he says. He says this, but set Christ apart as Lord in your hearts as always and always be ready to give an answer to anyone who asks about the hope you possess. Yet do it with courtesy and respect, keeping a good conscience so that those who slander your good conduct in Christ may be put to shame when they accuse you. For it is better for you to suffer for doing good if God wills it than for doing evil. Now, there's five things here that I want to give you. Number one, believers are to sanctify Christ in their hearts as Lord. Now, Christ has, according to Peter, in chapter 1, verse 13, listen to what he says. He says, "Is therefore, get your minds ready for action by being fully sober and set your hope completely on the grace that will be brought before you when Jesus Christ is revealed. Future. Verse 15 he goes down and says, Now be like the Holy One who called you. Become holy yourselves in all your conduct. God has already called the believers to be holy. Now he's saying you must act that way. And so in verse 14, when Peter says this, or 15, when he says, But set Christ apart in your hearts and always be ready to give an answer to anyone who asks about the hope. He's saying you must make him a priority, the highest priority in your life. The solution for a godly life here is not what's out there, but what's in, in Christ. You must also make Christ your absolute devotion. Which means that if your husband is not following him, you must make him your personal devotion. Jesus must be the priority. If your spouse is not following the Lord, you need to make that personal to you. It would be so much easier if one of us, if let's say my wife was really strong in her faith and all of a sudden her faith was being applied to me, but it doesn't work that way. And that's why when Peter says you need to make him the highest priority, you need to set him aside in your heart or apart in your heart as Christ, the one who was promised for you. His lordship is not a only a necessity for salvation, but it's also for Christian living. If a human king deserves all the honor and the respect, how much more does the Savior? But here's where it gets interesting. Verse 15, but set Christ apart as Lord in your hearts. In the Old Testament, the heart was the seat of all the emotions. 
the heart was, was, was everything from life to strength. The heart is also a place where all the actions arise, which means that what I do comes from here. Now, devotion here for the person of Jesus, his deity, must dominate the sphere of our hearts. That's what Peter is telling them. If somebody was to do an open heart surgery, they needed to see Jesus. That is what, that's what Peter is saying. The imprint of the cross needs to be so strong that it's all that the believer is going to do. Because if my emotion in my life is dictated by how my heart is, then Solomon was right when he wrote, above all things, guard your heart, for from it flows the springs of life. Now, believers are not only supposed to sanctify Christ, but they're supposed to be ready to give an answer. Now, Peter's not calling you to become a lawyer. That's not what he's doing here. He's not asking you to have all the answers. He's not asking you to be a judge. He's asking you that in your relationship that you have a reason for the hope that you have. And you realize he's not in one way, he's not asking you to share your faith. He's asking you for, to give a reason for the hope that you possess. Now the question is, how do we do this? The word here is the word for defense, okay? And it's based, listen to this, it's based on the conduct of the believer because he has been transformed or she has been transformed by the word of God. We're called to declare the hope that we have and to share the condition of our eternal destiny with those around us. We're not called to make converts. We're called to make disciples. God is the one that brings those who are dead back into life. And so that frees us to give an answer for the hope that we, we, you, you and I possess. The defense of our hope is based on the rational account giving a response to one's position, which means you have to have the knowledge to do it. I know that we believe that the Holy Spirit's going to work. I know we believe that God's going to do work in our lives that sometimes we have a hard time explaining it. And yes, God can give me the knowledge that I don't have to explain something that I don't understand, but most likely God's going to use the Word of God through the work of the Holy Spirit in order to accomplish His task. So what Peter is telling them, in the midst of their suffering, there's no excuse for you to be lazy. And I, I must confess to you that I feel, I feel guilty about this because if Peter was here and he had the chance to travel throughout this country and, and he was able to realize all the things that we possess and all the things that we have in life, he would probably come to the end of the day and say, we're done, we're done a poor job here in this area. Because we have all the freedom to do those things and to grow in our relationship with him. And we put that as a second plan. Not only you're called to, to give an answer, but you're called to show strength of character that is humble. Remember, I just told you, God didn't call you to be a lawyer. You're a son and daughter who must give an answer to the hope that you have. Now look with me in verse 16. Verse 16. 
It says this, yet do it with courtesy and respect, keeping a good conscience so that those who slander your good conduct in Christ may be put to shame when they accuse you. Wow. You're supposed to have humility when it comes to this because Peter's going to give you two conditions. You must have gentleness and respect, which means you must speak, you must not use harsh words. You must be gentle. It's the opposite of being clever. And you must have respect, which the Greek word here is the word for fear. So he's saying it reinforces here the mindset that whatever we do as a body of Christ and whatever the believers in Peter's times were supposed to do, they were supposed to do everything, once again, for the glory of God. And here's the key. In the midst of suffering, gentleness keeps us from being harsh, combative, and defensive. And respect, respect keeps us from, being, from, from the other extreme of self-protective silence. Peter's calling them to be active. Four, or D in your outline, believers are to have a sensitive conscience towards good. He says here, you're supposed to have a good conscience before the Lord and others. As Peter stated in verse 21, go to verse 21 with me in chapter 3, he says this, in this prefigure bap baptism, which now save you, not the washing of a physical dirt, but the pledge of a good conscience to God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Do you see that a good conscience here is directly linked to the resurrection of Jesus? It's not that the believer is not doing anything wrong. It's just that God has cleared the conscience of the sin that he has committed or the sin that she's committed. And we're supposed to live our lives in that, in that light. A good conscience, according to Wiersbe, is one that accuses you when you think or do anything wrong and when approves you for doing anything that's right according to God's standards. Now the key here is that you will do those things so that those who slander you, those who mock you and ridicule you, those who gossip about your faith, those who want to step down on you, that they will understand something here. And look at, look at verse 16 again. So that those who slander your good conduct in Christ may be put to shame when they accuse you. Now, I'm not sure about you, and I'm not sure how easy this is. But here was, here's what Peter is telling us. That those people who say negative things and false accusations and the mockery and the ridicule that comes to you, that when they do that, the people watching will say, man, that doesn't match what I see. I'm looking at them. I know, I know her. That's not her. Your life is supposed to be a reflection. And you need to set this hope in Christ in order that you may walk with him in a very wise way. And lastly, he says believers are to suffer if that's God's will. Now, like, like I said earlier, none of us would have anything on our top three here that would say suffering. But God does some amazing things through suffering, doesn't he? 
I heard a story one time about this guy who, this, this pastor who, who had a question being asked to him uh, during a conference, and the question was, uh, what, what should I do if, if, if I have been raped and I'm pregnant? And the pastor said, with all the wisdom, I am not sure, but let me tell you a story. He says, pastor so-and-so and our staff, his mom was raped and she was under the same situation and she decided to give birth to this child. Now his, this child is a pastor inside of this church. It is hard to believe that God can do good out of situations like that. But God works outside of our timeline. And that's why believers, even if you suffer, you suffer because it is God's will in that sense. No harm can come to you unless God permits. So do it. Now, here's the transition. In verse 18 to 22, Peter's going to talk about God's God vindicating Jesus in here. And, and I want you to pay really close attention to this because I think this is the key here to unlock the understanding of how we live our lives in light of suffering. Number one, verse 18, you have, because Jesus Christ has been vindicated in his death, he brought us to God. Now look at verse 18 again. Because Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust to bring you to God, by being put to death in the flesh, but by being made alive in the spirit. Now in these verses here, Peter's gonna focus on the vindication of Jesus Christ, okay? He's gonna, he's gonna be the driving force of Peter's argument here to those who have set apart Christ in their own hearts. So he's talking to us. If you've set Christ apart in your hearts, he's talking to us. And here's what he does. Here's what Peter described Jesus' sacrifices. Number one, Christ's sacrifices was once for sins. Did you notice that it says, because Christ also suffered once for sins, which means that his work on the cross demonstrates the completeness and the sufficiency of Jesus' sacrifice. In the Old Testament, they were sacrificing over and over and over again to try to appease God's wrath. And now Jesus comes and his sacrifice on the cross is once and for all. That is why Jesus can say, it is finished. No more. I've accomplished that in which the blood of bulls cannot do. So it's contrary to the Old Testament system. Peter is saying there's a completeness here. There's a sufficiency of Jesus' sacrifice. The second thing that we see is Christ's sacrifice satisfied God's wrath. When he says that he paid in full for our sins. Three, he says his sacrifice was uh, substitutionary. When he says the just for the unjust, which means the Jesus for you and I. And number four, his sacrifice had a purpose like everything else that God has ever done. His sacrifice had a purpose. Jesus' sacrifice was to bring you, listen to this and highlight that in your word, in your Bible, to bring you to God. And then Peter makes this incredible declaration here when he says in the second half of this verse, by, having, by being put to death in the flesh and by being made alive in the spirit. Now, this verse right here has many different interpretations. 
And um, I think what fit, fits better here in First Peter chapter one or First Peter uh, chapter three is is the description of the words flesh and spirit here. Uh, that talks about flesh as describing God's pre-resurrection condition, which is following his incarnation here, and the word spirit as a reference to his post-resurrection condition. Peter is actually using this, and he's going to use the same link in chapter 4, verse 6, when he says this, now it was for this very purpose that the gospel was preached to those who are now dead. So that through the, so that though they were judged in the flesh by human standards, they may be made alive in God's standards. So according to Peter, to made alive here in the spirit means this um, pre-resurrection condition here. And look at what Michael says, a commentator. He says, it's a statement that Christ was made alive in the spirit. Therefore, means simply that he was raised from the dead, not as a spirit, but, as, but bodily, as the resurrection always means in the New Testament. And in the sphere in which the spirit and power of God are displayed without hindrance or human limitation. The key here that I think is what Peter is trying to describe. He's trying to describe that Christ is the victor and not the victim. Christ was committed to God's will under suffering. And now that's the connection he's trying to make. And Peter's readers should continue to, be there, to, to have their commitment before God under their suffering. This is the same for you and I. It hasn't changed in 2,000 years. Our steadfast commitment to God should remain regardless of the situation or regardless of the fact that I feel like or not feel like following him tomorrow morning. And then Peter's going to make a very difficult declaration here in verses 19 to 20 in which many theologians disagree and not able to come to a conclusion about what that is. So for the sake of time, I'm going to give you my view on this point. And Pastor David has agreed at the end of the service, he's going to come up here and he's going to answer all the questions that you have about this text. So <laughs> in this vindication, we see not only that God has accomplished something amazing through Jesus by... Um, in his death, bringing us to him, but now in his resurrection, he's going to triumph over the disobedient here. Look with me in verse 19 and 20. It says this, in it, he went and preached to the spirits in prison after they were disobedient a long time ago, long time when God patiently waited in the days of Noah as an ark was being constructed. In the ark, a few, that is eight souls, were dis delivered through the water. Now, Let's, let's go one step at a time here to try to figure out what's going on here, how Peter is actually introducing more information about the, the resurrection and what happened afterwards. Number one, according to the context here, and if you look in your Bibles, the first two words in, that, in this text here says, in it. Now, what are those referring to? Well, if you look at the context in verse 18, the last words of verse 18 says, but by being made alive in the spirit. So Peter's making a connection that in the spirit, okay, he went and preached to the spirits in prison. Number two, we, we know that the spirits mentioned here by, by Peter were spirits that were disobedient in, in the time of Noah. Okay, that's clearly in the text here in the times of Noah. That means they were 
persistently disobeying God's standards. Remember the standards that we just talked about that Peter used to encourage the believers there. Those same people, the same standards were applying Noah's time and they were being disobedient towards God's standards in this, in this idea here. They were not obeying or following what God has for them, which means that disobedience here, disobedience here carries the idea of rebelling against the message and the standards of God just like doing right is based on God's standards. Number three, here's what we know. We know that this happened, this whole event happened in the time of Noah as an ark was being constructed. Now, if you do any study, and people disagree about this too, but most people will say that Noah was probably around 500 years old when this event took place, when the ark, the construction of the ark was, was taking place. So we know it wasn't previously to that because the text says this event happened when Noah was building the ark. Now we know, once again, number four, we know that this, the spirits here were in prison due to their disobedience to God. And number five, we know that God extended patience to them before judging the world through the flood. Now remember, God allowed Noah and his family to build an ark for almost a whole century. That is hard to understand. But if people were struggling back then and they were mocking and ridiculing and, and, and Noah's family was going through suffering just like the believers in Peter's times, it almost sounds like what Noah went through was very harsh in comparison to the temporary sufferings that the believers are going through now. Now, let, let me ask a few questions as we evaluate this. Number one, what is the identity of the spirits here? That is a very important question. Throughout Peter's writings here, the word spirit, and we have to do some word study now, is never used in the sense of angelic beings here. So I believe the spirits here are in, are in this condition because they failed to, to, to obey God in the time of Noah and they have been punished by the judgment of God when the flood came down. Now, what was the message that Jesus preached? Because he went, the text says, he went and preached to the spirits in prison. What, what is the message? Jesus' message, number one, is not a message of reconciliation. He's not giving them a second chance. Now, now listen to me. I, I'm not sure where you are spiritually. But what I can tell you right now is that God is not telling you and I through Peter that if you die and go to where the spirits are that you will have a second chance. No. There is no second chance, and it's not a, a message of reconciliation. He didn't go down to this place to preach the gospel. The message that he went down to preach to this location is a proclamation of victory. His death, burial, and resurrection proclaims the message of victory. He is victorious. He's communicating through this message that the, the penalty for sin was already paid in full once and for all. 
And Jesus' proclamation to the spirits here becomes this message of victory, not of repentance. Now the next question that comes is, where was this message proclaimed? And I think you're beginning to understand how complicated this thing can go, right? The text here says that Jesus himself went and preached to the spirits in prison. Notice that the spirits are in prison here when Jesus gets there. So in my understanding, in my understanding, and this is one of the few views that I believe could be under the biblical parameters here. But my understanding is that this place here is called Hades. In the New Testament, Hades always refers to the abode of the unsaved dead before their resurrection in condemnation before the great white throne judgment. According to the Old Testament, this place was actually comprised of two different compartments. Now, here's where it gets tricky, I think. Because I think the best idea to explain this text text is to look at a passage in which Christ actually communicates something very similar to what's going on here. And that's in Luke chapter 16, when he talks about the rich man and Lazarus. Now, I believe this, this idea is described, best described in that sense because this story here is in which Lazarus dies and he, he's resting in Abraham's bosom. Okay? While the rich man is condemned and it's contained in Hades. Now, Lazarus represents the righteous and the rich man represents the unrighteous, just like the Old Testament view that would have the unrighteous and the righteous compartment. Even though they are not in the same place, Lazarus and the rich man, they can still communicate to each other. They can hear each other. And they're separated, even though they're separated by a great chasm. So when Peter actually declares that Jesus preached, I believe he's making a proclamation once again of victory to the righteous individual that are in this location where Lazarus was. Because his proclamation here is to them. That's what the text says. The rejection of God's message had been validated. So he's proclaiming to the righteous that he's victorious and the unrighteous can hear the victory that has taken place. This is a message of victory. Whatever you feel about yourself when you leave here today, you need to remember that this message is a message of victory. So Peter's looking at the example of Christ, I believe, and he's making a connection between Noah and his family and Peter's readers. And here's what I think gets really interesting. Noah's generation heard the message. Noah proclaimed it. They heard the message. They rejected. They disobeyed. And Peter is telling them to share the hope that they have to their generation. Noah's generation was disobedient to God's message, and Peter's generation was not much different. Noah looked to God's promise in the future for the Messiah who would come. But Peter's audience looked to the fulfillment of God's promise in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. 
both Noah's family and Peter's family and, and Peter's audience and his readers had been called to find hope in the midst of suffering. And both Noah's family and Peter's readers were a minority, one in the midst of a wicked and crooked generation and the other one in the midst of the Roman Empire. And you and I are called to do the same. The ark here is the instrument used by God to rescue them and the flood of judgment of God upon the unbelievers is the judgment of God for their disobedience. For Noah and his family, salvation was provided by God and it was available to those who believed in him. For Peter's readers, salvation had been provided by the cross in the person of Jesus. And just like the ark protected Noah's family from destruction, Jesus protects those who believe in him by becoming sin for us, the just for the unjust. But that's not all. He was not only triumph over his resurrection, but in his ascension, he vindicated those who trust in Christ. Look at verses 21 and 22. Here's what it says. In this prefigure baptism, which now saves you, not the washing of, of physical dirt, but the pledge of a good conscience to God through the resurrection of Jesus, who went into heaven and is at the right hand of, the, of God with angels and authorities and powers subjected to him. Now, here's what you need to know. Peter is not referring here to baptism as a way of salvation. Okay? So we need, to, we, need to, we need to look at this because he didn't stop there when he says baptism now saves you. He says, listen to this, verse 21, not the washing off of physical dirt, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus. It was not the water, listen, it was not the water of the flood in the time of Noah that saved him and his family. It was not the water of baptism that saved Peter's readers. And it's not the water of baptism that saved us. It was their belief in God in the time of Noah. It was their belief in the empty cross in the time of the readers. And it is the belief in the empty cross on the empty cross now that saved us. It is by faith. So just as the ark here pictures salvation for Noah, baptism pictures salvation for the readers. And that's why we do that as a public demonstration of what God has done inside. It's an outward display of an inward reality. And so for Peter's readers here, the cross is not only the visible illustration of God's punishment on Jesus, but it is also the instrument of redemption for those who believe in him. So the way Peter ends this is incredible. And I don't want you to miss this because he's reminding them that Christ's vindication has provided many things to Christ and it will provide many things to us. Number one, Christ is exalted at the right hand of God. He's occupying the position of honor and authority next to the Father, a position that belongs to him. But what is incredible about this is that he's now at the right hand of the Father for the first time in his life in his human condition. That is why when Thomas asked the questions, he said, you can touch 
the miracle here is that he's been exalted to the position in his human form, in his human condition. Number two, he's ascended into heaven, which is the place that he belongs. And the place where he made it and he's making available for the, those who follow him. And Christ is sovereign over, over all things, over angels, over authorities, and over powers. Now, as a basketball player, I lost lots of games in my, games in my life. Actually, the time that I, won, that I won the most games was when I was in college because before I think I had a 25% winning victory on my resume. What's amazing about this is that this is way more than just a basketball game. Christ is victorious over everything. Even, even when you, in your suffering, cannot see it beyond what's happening at the moment. So in this passage here, Peter shows us that as a result of God's suffering, we can be confident that he will because he has triumphed, but that we will triumph because of him. And this provides the readers of 1 Peter's, and I think it should provide us with the confidence that we also will be victorious because he is victorious. So CBF, here's what I have for you. Be willing to suffer for what is good as those who have set apart Christ in your hearts because Christ has been vindicated. He is victorious, and his victory is our encouragement and our example during difficult times. Amen. Father, we thank you for this day. There are so many things in your word that we do not understand. But Father, I pray that the things that we do understand, that we will grab them and make them so precious in, in our hearts, just like what Peter has asked of his readers to do, to set Christ apart. And Father, I pray for everyone here today. I pray that we would love one another, but above everything else, that we would have a heart that's pierced by your word. Change us, Lord. And help us in the times of suffering so that we might look at you and see the power that you have displayed to us. In Jesus' name I pray.